0: If you're here for the first time, if you're joining us for the first time in a while, you picked a good week because today we are launching the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I have a feeling that Corinthians is going to be kind of a long journey for us. The book of John took us well over a year, um, so we're going to we're gonna be in the book of Corinthians for a while. Now, we're going to pop out of it for four, five, six weeks at a time, multiple times throughout the series, and dive into some other scriptures and some other topics as we go through it, um, but I anticipate this uh, book of Corinthians will take us through most of the year on and off. And so um, what's cool about the book of 1 Corinthians, it's almost like, as Paul writes it, as he uh, as he composes this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's almost like the book of Corinthians is almost like a master class for all of Christian living. Like this is how you look at society and this is he gives us he's going to give us a class on how we live, how we function in society, in our lives as followers of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I remember I walking in last night, the service, and I talked to a a friend ahead of service. I'm like, hey, how you doing? And she's like, man, this, this week it felt, it was Monday and then it felt like it was just Friday. I don't even know where the week went. Anybody feel like that sometimes? I think life has a way of just being a little bit overwhelming oftentimes, doesn't it? And just going by, I mean, there's so much minutia. And oftentimes it's hard to keep the big picture in sight. I mean, I've found this week just myself buried in like, you know, phone calls on like employment stuff and spreadsheets and random miscellaneous stuff. Now I know, um, you know, I'm like, and I, my job, part of my job is to, you know, you guys um, employ me to actually study the scriptures and stay dialed into the big picture. And yet there's weeks when it's really hard for me to kind of keep the big picture of what's going on, right? And I think that's true of all of us, because life's just so full of, of craziness, isn't it? I mean, if you try to keep up with news headlines and current events, it's like all this stuff being thrown at you from all these different directions. And then we're in this weird sort of new thing where, where with AI and everything, you, you see a video and you don't even know if it's true anymore, right? Like, ah, who knows if that's even real? It's a strange kind of place to live in culturally, And and all these ideas floating around in our culture about what truth is or what truth isn't and and all these individual interpretations of truth. And then just so much minutia from running kids around the soccer fields to sports to to all the things going on, thinking about uh, appointments and house remodels and kids and cats and dogs and all that stuff. It all feels sometimes so random, so disconnected. And oftentimes, it's hard to stay connected to the big picture. And here's what we're going to see as we launch into this book this week. Paul is going to start this letter. Now, he's going to get to some pretty serious topics because the book of Corinthians is really like, okay, how how do you live in a culture that's completely pagan, that that doesn't believe um, the Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview? How do you live? How do you do life? How do you do sex? How do you live in this kind of culture? How do you view your life? How do you view truth? And Paul's going to address all these different issues. But before he gets to it, and he's going to have some, some pretty hard little areas of correction to bring to this church. Because they've cozied up too much with culture. They've, they have factions and all these different things. And they've sort of bought into the cultural narrative of their time. But before he gets to the correction part of it. What he's going to do is he's going to remind us. He says, hey, I want to remind you of the big picture. I want to remind you of the why of this whole thing. Because otherwise, you just, it's minutia. But I want to remind you of the why behind the way you're called to live. Otherwise, you're just going to try real hard and you're going to continually fail. But I want to remind you of the vastness of the thing you've been invited into in Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, we're going to dive right on in. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. And here's what it says. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. And so you see right off the bat some names here. And uh, you're going to see... Paul. This is actually written, this whole first nine verses that we're going to go through today. I thought about just doing the first verse. Uh, We're going to dive into Acts here in a minute and kind of catch up. And then I thought, no, you guys would like, oh no, this book's (laughs) going to take forever if all I get through is the first verse. So we're going to go through nine verses here, but we're going to jump out of it in just a second. And what you see on this is, is, is Paul, this is written in a common introduction to a letter in the Greco-Roman world. This was a common structure that, that they were familiar with. And so Paul introduces himself, and then he gives us some interesting details that we need to clue into. And we'll do that in a minute. By the will of God, it wasn't my idea that, that, to, to be in this calling that God gave me as an apostle, as a messenger of him. But he, uh, he gave me a commission. See, Paul, if you know anything about Paul, he's, he's famous. He was a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, he grew up in a, in a Jewish home, actually a Pharisee, we find out, uh, which was kind of the most religious sect, the most dialed in when it came to being good and following God's law and all of those things. He would have probably known the whole Old Testament scripture by heart. By the time he was a young man, he was excelling in education. He was rising to the tops of the elite in his whole field in leadership in Jerusalem and in the whole temple system. And then this little movement called the way springs up that follows this supposed Messiah, Jesus. And he's going to stomp it out. And so he is persecuting the church of God. And he is one of their chief antagonists, actually, against Jesus' movement. And then, and then he has a moment where actually he encounters Jesus. He didn't just like, you know, through thinking hard and wisdom and, and studying and research come to this opinion. No, actually he encounters the risen Jesus that he had been persecuting. And in a blinding flash of light, he's knocked off of his donkey. He's knocked onto his back. And he hears the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is, uh, is his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus, um, Jesus actually commissions him to go and be the apostle. And with the same zeal that he took into the rest of his life, He takes now into going all around the Mediterranean Rim, the civilized world, and planting churches, these little gatherings, assemblies called ecclesias. It's part of the movement. That's what church means, ecclesia, a movement, an assembly, a gathering devoted to following Jesus. And he goes and plants these all over the world. And and he's just brilliant. If you read Romans, many people think of it as one of the greatest works of not just the Bible, but of all literature, because it's just so brilliant. Scholars believe that even if Paul hadn't written half of the New Testament almost, you would have heard of his name because he was just that, that smart, right? And yet he gives his life, goes through all sorts of persecution for Jesus. And he said, I didn't get into this. I didn't sign up. I didn't apply to college, send my resume in, get accepted. No, Jesus called me into this. It was by the will of God. He's the one who got me into this. He's the one who met me. He's the one who forgave me. He even calls himself the worst of sinners. It's like God was looking. Jesus was going, man, we need someone, you know, with a lot of dedication. Hey, man, look at him. Look at how how he's persecuting us. Let's get him. Let's get him on the team. And he goes on to change the world for Jesus. Paul by the will of God. And then we got this other name, Brother Sosthenes. And this is cool because a handful of times in Paul's letters, he actually puts somebody else sort of as the co-author. Now, now we don't believe that he actually uh, wrote this with Paul. It's more of like he was a traveling companion with Paul. And as they're sending a letter, Paul includes him because his name carries weight in Corinth. And you're going to see that in just a minute. And so I want to jump out of Corinthians actually for a minute now to begin to set up this letter. And we're going to go over to the book of Acts. Because in Acts chapter 18, we sort of get the big picture of how this movement, how this gathering was launched in Corinth, how this church was started. And it's going to help us understand and have a basis for a lot of how um, this book is going to unfold. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, uh, it says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And so this is Paul's second missionary journey where he's going around. These journeys are taking um, uh, very many months and, and he has been traveling around the Mediterranean Rim. He's come up through Greece and he's just been preaching in Athens at the, uh, at the Aragapis. How do you say that? That's not right. I can't ever pronounce this word, but I was there when I was 13. And it's really cool. Actually, I stood on the very spot on Mars Hill. Where Paul preached this amazing sermon, the one right before this, in Acts chapter 17, the Oropagus, I think that's how you say it. And now he's traveled down to Corinth. And what you gotta understand is Corinth, this, this city, um, after it was destroyed in the Roman Wars, Julius Caesar rebuilt it in about 44 BC. And he made, made it a Roman colony. And by the time by Paul's day, by the time Paul showed up in the eighty fifties. It was probably the wealthiest city in Greece. It was a very prominent city in the Roman Empire and in the Greek region of the uh, Roman Empire. In fact, we've got a picture uh, from the air of what this looked like. One of the reasons why this became such a prominent city is because there's a a big, what was called an isthmus there um, that separated the, the, uh, the sea. And so instead of sailing around the treacherous coastline, they actually, there's now a canal that they put in in the 1800s but before that, they built a uh, about a ten-foot-wide brick road that went through there, and they would actually haul their ships up on like, you know, round um, logs and stuff, and they would haul them over instead of having to sail around this treacherous thing because it was a lot easier to do this, and so it became this sort of trade route and this hub. It was a major cultural urban center. In fact, I got to go to Corinth on this trip uh, where my parents, we were on this um, ministry trip. My parents ran an organization, still do, called Alpha Omega, and they spoke all over Europe when I was uh, going into, uh, I don't know, like seventh grade or something. And we traveled all over Europe. And I remember getting to go to the site of the ancient ruins of Corinth. And it's this amazing, you can go to the next slide. It's this amazing site where where you have, uh, I mean, it's, it's all that's left of it now, but it was a cultural center. It was an urban center. And of course, we, we got to go see all these cool things when we were in Europe, um, ruins and castles and statues and cathedrals and all this stuff that, that I had. You're 13. You don't care, right? Now I look back. I'm like, that was so cool. I wish I appreciated it. And I'm thankful I can remember some of it. But what do you care about when you're 13? Um, I remember what I was most impacted by, Nutella. (laughs) This was before it showed up in the U.S., and I remember we stayed at this German family's home and we got up and they made us pancakes and, um, and they put out this jar of something that we thought was Marmite because we were in England before this, which Marmite's nasty. Um, sorry if you like it, it's nasty. Um, and so <laughs> I take a spoon of this a little bit and I'm like, it's like, blah. <laughs> chocolate, it comes in jars. It, it, it was amazing. It kind of changed my life. Um, <laughs> and then the next thing, being 13, that I remember, we were on a train in, in Switzerland, and uh, this guy, this random stranger, buys both me and my brother Tolberone. And again, now you can buy it at Sam's Club. But then it was like this exotic Swiss chocolate, and I still remember again. Law! You know, it was, it was great. And then I remember the pizzas and calzones in Italy. You know, St. Peter's Basilica, whatever. The pizza shop. Anybody been to Italy? And you're like, yeah, I can agree. Amen to that. Yeah, the food's just amazing, right? And so that's what I'm thinking about. But we show, up in, uh, we show up in Greece, and we're speaking at a missions training school. Well, not we. I'm 13. My parents, I'm just along for the ride. But one of my good buddies who moved from here over to there, they're missionaries in Greece. I got to hang out with him for a couple weeks in Greece, and that was really cool. We did all kinds of fun stuff. And one of the things I'll remember is going to the ruins at ancient Corinth, It's this major cultural center at the day. It's also, um, part of that is they had a huge stadium. This is the stadio or the stadium. It held 18,000 people. And every two years, they would host what were known as the Isthmian Games, where they were second only to the Olympics. All these athletic competitions and things. And so this was a, a huge cultural center. I remember I got to run on the ancient Olympic track when I was in Greece. With my buddy, but what I appreciated even more than that, they had these ancient um, commodes that were like runes, and we got to go sit on those. So, for a 13 year old, that was pretty cool. <laughs> they also had a theater in Corinth that could hold about 3,000 people, and they had all kinds of dramas and musical entertainment. So, that's sort of the cultural aspect of Corinth to the city that God's called. Paul now to go. And here's what happens when he shows up. It says this, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, who was the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Long story, but you can go back and see this in history. And it says, and he went to see them. So these guys, they're famous, Prisca and Aquila. In fact, they're mentioned multiple other times in the scripture. And it's interesting because she's always mentioned first. And we think that's because she played the prominent role in their ministry life. It's Prisca and Aquila. And it says, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul um, got together with them, he started working alongside them to support himself, and it says this, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So this was typical. Paul would go into a new community. And because God had paved the way with Greek, with Roman roads, and with Greek language, a common language from Alexander the Great, all over the the whole world at this point, this area of the world, um, there were all these little Jewish communities spread all throughout here where they would go to trade. And so there was a synagogue where somebody already believed in Yahweh, the one true God. And Paul would show up there, and they'd not heard of Jesus oftentimes Because this had happened so recently. But they they had maybe heard his name, but they didn't really know. They'd heard these rumors about him. And Paul would come and say, hey, you worship the one true God, Yahweh. But remember that thing that Isaiah prophesied 700 years ago about the Messiah, the thing we've been anticipating? Well, I'm here to tell you it happened. Yahweh stepped into history. He took on flesh. He became human. He launched the kingdom of God. And it looks different than we expected that so we missed it. And actually, the thing that he did we, that we never saw coming was that he died. The one true God became a servant. And he died for us. And then he rose again. And now he's inviting not just our family, the Jewish people, but people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation to come be part of this worldwide movement of this thing that he's doing. And one day, he is re- going to return. He's going to judge the living and the dead. He gives them the big picture. He shares with them, hey, we've anticipated this, and it's Jesus. And he takes them through the scriptures, and he shows them how this, ha- this was true. And he says, turn from your sin and embrace Jesus as your Messiah. He would do this all over. And oftentimes, he would usually start um, in the synagogue, which is sort of the Jewish version. Well, it's really a lot of how, how we do... Church came from originally the synagogue um, in Jewish cultures. They would meet, they would study scriptures, they would pray. It says this in verse 5: When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, two of Paul's kind of key co-workers, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. This is the message, the Messiah. It was Jesus. He, he came. And when they opposed and reviled him, so often what would happen is he would have some welcome reception for a little bit. But as soon as people started embracing the message of Jesus, the religious leaders in these synagogues and these communities were threatened and they began to persecute Paul. And so he's had to oftentimes uh, leave an area because they they were going to kill him. In fact, he had to be lowered down at one point in a basket out of a window because they were going to kill him. And it says, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he says, the offer of the gospel has gone forth, but you guys, the leaders, you're rejecting it. I'm going to go preach to someone who hopefully will embrace this message. Now, what you have to understand about the Gentile culture, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans, everybody else that wasn't a Jew in this area of the world There was a specific religious atmosphere, and it was so pagan. My kids are into these books right now, uh, kind of a fictional series uh, based around some Greek mythology. And we talk about different things, and it's fascinating. All these gods and goddesses that actually Paul says are related back to actual fallen angel demons that people worship, They're, they're the things behind these gods and goddesses of the ancient world. And they worshipped all these different gods and goddesses. And so you go to Corinth, even today you can find the ruins of some of these sites where they worshipped. They had all sorts of things, multiple shrines, including like the Fountain of Poseidon. And you have a mixture of Greek and Roman gods because, you know, the Roman gods are pretty much just the Greek gods and goddesses with new names, right? They had a shrine, to the Egyptian goddess Isis. They had a temple temple of Apollo um, that you can still go see today. There was another temple that they renovated late in the first century to be called the temple of Octavia, where they would then worship Caesar's sister, Augustus Caesar's sister. And this temple was sort of named in honor of her, and they'd worship other gods and goddesses. And then perhaps the most famous temple was at the top of that hill, you can see in the back of the picture there. And that's the temple of Aphrodite. And of course, she's the Greek goddess of love, of Eros, love. And this, this temple, a uh, uh, Greek writer Strabo claimed at one point, uh, when it was in its heyday, that there were a thousand cult prostitutes that worked out of this temple. A thousand. In fact, I had to look pretty hard to find a, uh, a picture of Aphrodite that I could show at church, that she actually had some clothes on, okay? But this housed cult prostitutes. In fact, there was a word for a Corinthian girl. This word over time became slang for a loose woman. That's how prominent in this culture just sort of everything goes when it comes to sexuality was. And this is going to begin to work its way into the church. As you have all these people now tr- turning to Jesus and coming out of this culture. And it's going to present lots of problems. And Paul's going to have to say, hey, you're called to live differently. You're called to come out of society, to be in the world, but not of the world. And and here's what that looks like. Here's how you do that in, in culture. And I think there's going to be lots of things we learn as we go through this about how we live in a culture that, again, today says anything goes, right? So you have a religious atmosphere that worships gods and goddesses, and it's always tied up in immorality and all this stuff. And then you have this intellectual atmosphere that comes from Greek philosophy and Greek ideals of individual, individualism and equality and freedom and distrust of authority. You have the philosophers. In fact, where Paul was speaking um, right before he came down here at the Aragapius, and I can't, I can't ever remember how to say that word. I should learn it. Um, <laughs> But it says all they did all day long was they they sat around and discussed philosophy and tried to figure out the meaning of life. And all of this like searching for the meaning of life and, and some, the wealthy patrons who would have these sort of client classes that work for them um, and then would do them favors and they support them. Uh, you had this whole thing going on and so some found like, the meaning of life and power, and this works itself into the church. And some of it was in this uh, flowery speech and drama and all of this philosophy. And sort of the whole point of like, what's truth really? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Our culture actually, as I look at our culture, I'm like, eh, it seems like we're just kind of descending in ancient Greek and Roman thinking. Pretty much. As we move back towards paganism. Search for the meaning of life. In fact, one scholar, he describes, um, he describes Corinth as kind of a combination of New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. If you want to understand, financial sector, cultural sector, and party sector, right? That's kind of what this city was all about. And by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, man, the majority of the church. Paul writes it a few years after he was here and the majority of the church now was made up of these gentiles that Paul went and preached the gospel to from different pagan backgrounds and so Paul's writing them and saying hey it's so awesome you're pursuing Jesus now let's talk about how to live in his kingdom let's talk about how the gospel impacts your life let's talk about the big picture of what how life is meant to be lived I'm going to give you a class, a master class on how to live life. So it goes on to to tell us the story of the church in Corinth. In verse 7, it says, And he left there and went to a house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, a Gentile, next door. It says his house was next door to the synagogue. Man, that must have driven him crazy. (laughs) Paul goes, I'm going to the Gentiles. He goes, next door. And they're like, how do we get rid of this guy? And then check this out. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, here Paul, believed and were baptized. A synagogue ruler, this was kind of like a lay person, a lay leader who helped the rabbi conduct services, but a person of prestige and of influence in the synagogue. And, and he comes to Jesus And then his whole family does, too. And it's magnetic, and all all of a sudden, other people start coming to Jesus. And let me just point out something real quick. Men in the room, young men in the room, fathers in the room. This is why it's so vital to take Jesus seriously, to pursue God with all your heart. See, society has this sort of Homer Simpson vision of men oftentimes, right? Of this sort of dumb, checked out spiritual kind of guy. Dumb, checked out dudes. That's not the vision of Scripture. The vision of Scripture is an engaged follower of Jesus, in a husband, in a father, of servant leadership, of someone passionate about Jesus and pursuing Him. And here's the thing you see statistically that oftentimes, um, Sometimes, when mom comes to Jesus in the family and, and dad doesn't, it doesn't end up having nearly, now sometimes it does, but oftentimes statistically, it doesn't end up having nearly as much influence on the family following God. But when dad comes to Jesus and pursues Jesus with all his heart, man, it, it's a game changer statistically. The family, oftentimes, the whole family begins to follow Jesus. And this is exactly what you see here. He's, he's got influence. That's why it's so vital, man, pursue Jesus with all your heart. So people start coming to Jesus, and there's all this tension with the synagogue leaders. And here's what happens. It says this, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. I'm sure he's wondering like, okay, I'm seeing this ramp up. I've experienced this in other towns before. Jesus actually speaks to him in a vision, and says this, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For, listen up, why am I going to protect you? Why why do I want you to not to be silent? For I have many in this city who are my people. Many in the city who are my people. See, God says, hey, I've got all these people that haven't come to know me yet, but I'm seeing them. They're here. I have many in this city who are mine. And your job is to bring the gospel to them so that they embrace it, so that they trust it. And this brings up all these things of of God's like looking down and goes, he's mine, he's mine, he's mine. Which sometimes we spin out on, right? The whole like predestination free will thing. We're like, how does that all work? We can't wrap our minds around it. Of course, we're not the infinite God who sits outside of time and space. You really think you can understand him? And he looks down and he sees all these people that he know are going to be in his family and he wants to use the Apostle Paul as his instrument to do that. He says, I'm going to protect you. There's going to be supernatural protection. And these people are going to believe in me and trust in me. I have many in this city who do not know me yet. Here's what I believe. I believe God is speaking to some of you and laying on your hearts. I have many in this city that do not know Jesus yet. Who's he laying on your heart? Are you listening to him? He wants to use you like he used the Apostle Paul to reach many in the city for him. So he gives them this assurance of divine protection. You know the old prayer, hedge of protection, right? And I'm always like, eh, hedge. How about a big old bad angel with a sword of protection? That's what I want, right? But he says, I'm going to protect you. They're not going to harm you. He gives, gives them Now, this wasn't always the case in Paul's life. Not by a long shot. This is an important lesson to remember. Because when you read this, it's like, yeah, everything worked out great for Paul. Paul reminds us in his second letter to the Corinthians that being blessed by God doesn't always mean being comfortable. That God's protection and God's hand on your life doesn't mean that all of life makes sense or that it's easy. It's easy. Back when Jesus calls Paul and calls the first guy to come like sort of pray for Paul, he says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for me. Like I've picked a guy because I know he can handle it. And I'm going to give him the grace to handle it. So Paul, actually, at one point in the second letter, he talks about all the things he's gone through. He says, I've worked so hard. He says, I've been, I've been imprisoned multiple times. There's been countless beatings, often near death. He says, there's five times at the hands of the Jews I received 40 lashes, less one. Why, did, why was that, 39 lashes? Because they believed one more, you'd kill them. Paul says, five times that happened to me. And you felt a little awkward, because somebody knew you were a follower of Jesus right Paul says five times three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned with rocks you got to clarify that in Colorado right three times I was shipwrecked a night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things. There's this pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, my concern for all the churches. And then he goes on, he's saying, I'm not saying this to boast. In fact, what I'm boasting in is I'm weak. I can't do this. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And so even though in this circumstance we see God says, I'm going to protect you here and now, Paul ends up actually giving his life as a martyr for Jesus. And he says, you know what? In the big picture, it's worth it. In the big picture, I'm living my calling out. Here's how this time in Corinth ends. In verse 12, it says, when Galileo was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack. Finally, they get fed up. They made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Paul's a Roman citizen. They can't beat him. They can't whip him legally, Right. But they hauled him in front of the Roman governor. And this is cool. You can go visit this in Corinth. This is the Bema of Corinth, which was sort of the seat of power. There's a representation up top. Uh, Of course, all there are are ruins. Now, um, of the greatest empire the world's ever seen. All that's left are ruins, right? But 2,000 years later, we're still here worshiping the name of Jesus. I think that's significant. So all, all, this is, they haul him in front, and we, this is how we know, one of the ways we know exactly when Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, because he writes it just a couple years after he was there, and Galileo was only pro we can see in Roman history, for a very short period of time, in about A.D. 51 or 52. And so we know exactly when Paul wrote this, and scholars actually don't dispute that this was an authentic letter written by Paul in the early, or in the mid-50s A.D., so it says this, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. He's like, blah, 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 don't waste my time. Go, <laughs> go deal with your own stuff. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And here's what happens. Remember the name we first read up front? And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Now remember this name, right? Because when we get back to 1 Corinthians, we're going to see Paul called 1 Corinthians 1.1 to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, as you read through Acts, what's interesting is you have Crispus, the synagogue ruler. Then you have Sothenes, the synagogue ruler. And I read this really interesting little piece on this, like this research, this scholarly paper. Because there's a really strong argument to made that, that these are the same guy. That actually, you know, oftentimes, what does Jesus give Peter a nickname? You're Simon. You're going to be called Peter, the rock. Well, Crispus means curly you know kind of like Larry Moe and Curly <laughs> and what we see in here is when Crispus goes after Jesus and all his family follows and then all these people come to Jesus scholars think because Luke doesn't introduce us in Acts he doesn't like tell us why he's like he just introduced the second synagogue ruler and yet it was common for names to change in in the first century for for someone to be given a new name. Scholars think that perhaps what's happening here is Crispus. Paul gave him a new name, Sosthenes, which means essentially strong savior. And then Paul includes him as a co-author, as part of the salutation in his book, because his name carries weight. Corinth. Paul, I'm called to be an apostle. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, in the Greco-Roman world, as Paul starts this letter, he's going to address it much like we would to whom it might concern, to whom it may concern, dear so-and-so. And they had a format. And so Paul's sticking that with that format, but then he includes some really cool things, like he's called, like we talked about that. It wasn't his choice. And then he says this, to the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified and called to be his holy people. And the, the the usage here, the word usage is a little bit different than often we think of sanctification, the process of, of uh, God growing us in our faith and purifying us. It, they really mean the same thing. And it's the idea of being set apart for a special purpose by God. Sanctified, set apart for a special purpose by God. And this is so interesting because he's gonna go on in this letter and he's gonna deal with some some very marked areas in their life where they're not very holy. And yet in painting the picture, in his introduction, he's like, I'm calling you into something. You've been called. You've been called to live differently. You've been called. Why? Because you called to a bigger purpose. You have a different mission. You have a bigger vision for your life. You've been called. You were, he's going to tell him, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. So honor God with your bodies. He's going to tell him. And it's not just them. See, this letter is to us, too. He says, together with all, with all who call on the name of Jesus. I want to remind you, Corinthians, this isn't your own private little thing. This isn't about your your devotions and then sort of, you know, Christianity. Your faith has this little part of your life, and then you have the rest of your life, and you check in at church, and you barely think about Jesus. No, you're called together to something bigger than yourself. This is about, this isn't some privatized thing. This isn't your little truth, your little faith that nobody cares, that doesn't impact anybody. As long as you keep it to yourself, you're called to something beyond yourself, something bigger than yourself. You're meant to live in community, to be part of something. We say often around here, life is for you, it's not about you. And so often we get those things confused. And when we do every time, our life moves towards selfishness and away from purpose. He says, I want to start before we get into the stuff, the correction. I want to remind you that you're called to something big, something beyond you. And it comes to our one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps talking. He keeps bringing it back to Jesus. Eight, eight different times in these few verses, he's going to talk about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. He says this in verse four, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Jesus. You didn't do this. Just like I didn't call myself into this. Jesus appeared to me. He encountered me. You didn't get yourself into this. You didn't work your way into this. He called you. He invited you into his family. It was grace. It was unmerited favor. And then he says this, and and you've actually experienced God. Check this out. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. And it's just funny because he's going to go on to deal with some of their, they think they're a lot more mature than they are. And he's going to go on and go, you're still kind of immature. You need to grow up in your faith. But in this part, he's encouraging him. No, actually, you've been enriched. Man, we've been here. Timothy's been here. Apollos, we're going to find out. Another leader's been here. We've poured our lives into you. You've been enriched in every way. And the Spirit of God is moving in your midst, too. It's not just human knowledge. It's not sophistry like the Greek culture around, where it's just about like flowery language. No, God's actually alive and moving in your midst. Check this out. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. That God's actual power is working in your midst. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Remember where this is going. He's coming back. In the meantime, God's presence and power is actually very real in your midst. Remember that. And I love it because he praises him actually for something he's going to go on and actually say, now we need to get this thing in order. Because when it comes to spiritual gifts, man, he's actually, it's a good thing. God's very present and active in your midst. You're not just cold and dead to his work. It's not just all a head thing for you. He's actually moving in your midst. And yet we need to bring this thing to order. And here's what we're going to discover about gifts is that the heart of it, it's all about serving others. See, A lot of times when we think about it, he says, you've been called to this big thing. You've been called. And a lot of times we spin out trying to figure out like, okay, God, where should I go? What should I do? And he says, I've called you to be part of this thing. I've given every one of you a gift. And that gift is meant to serve the body of Christ. See, there's something in all of us that wants to be special. God says, hey, Figure out how I've wired you up and use it to serve others in the place where you're at. I can make it very clear when I have a direction for you to go. Don't spin out so much on that. Do your life and serve others. I mean, he, can, he spoke to Paul in a, in a vision at night. Stay there. He's, Paul stays another 18 months. See, and then he brings it back to the trajectory. I love this. You're waiting for Jesus. Remember that. This whole thing only makes sense. See, the culture that they're in was bankrupt when it came to meaning and purpose. They debated, they had philosophy, the greatest philosophers in the world. They couldn't figure out the meaning or the purpose of life. One side was just spiritually sort of detach and escape the physical body. The other side was like, well, forget that. It's all about hedonism. Eat, live, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just party. And both of these issues will come into the church. And Paul says, no, I'm reminding you that you're on a trajectory somewhere. Here's how these last two verses end. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, Jesus is coming back. Live like it. He's coming back. Are you living like it? Is that a forefront? Are you waiting for him? Are you anticipating him? And then this is how he closes his his greeting. He says, this God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You don't don't have to worry. God's going to get you there. This is how he can look. This is what's so striking about this this introduction to this book. He can look at a church that we're going to find out is kind of a hot mess in a lot of areas. And because he knows God has, his grace has encountered people and his Holy Spirit's active in their midst, guess what? He says, God's going to get you there. Kind of like he writes to the the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's going to get to the correction. But before we get to that, I want to remind you of the big picture. You belong to Jesus. You've been invited into the, fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you hear fellowship, and some of you grew up in church, and you think a potluck. No, think fellowship of the rings. This is a mission you've been called into. You've been called into a group of people worldwide who are taking the kingdom of God the message about the kingdom of God, and the gospel and the grace of Jesus to the world. That's what you've been called into. And your message is, he's coming. He's here now. But he's coming back. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. You're part of a bigger picture. Remember that. Live into that. You're part of something that should change everything in your life. You were part of the global advancing ecclesia church movement, assembly of God. You're here because Jesus looked at our city, your city, wherever you found him and said, I have many in this city. And he tapped somebody on the shoulder to share the message of Jesus with you. That's why you're here. Just like he spoke to Paul and said, hey, Corinth, stay here because I have many in this city. You've been called to be part of that mission. What are you doing with it? Are you living? Or are you just wrapped up in the minutia? Are you living into this? Is it the primary motivator and driver in your life? Because this is where meaning and purpose is found. He knows we need to go to work, pay bills, all that stuff. But that stuff exists. I mean, Paul was a tent maker. That stuff exists in a bigger framework. This is what my life is about. The fellowship with the son of God. And those around that have been called to the world because I have many in this city who are my people. They just don't know it yet. I have many in this city. Will you live into that? That's the challenge of the greeting of Corinthians. Would you stand? Let me just ask you. Rubber meets the road. Who in your circle is he calling you to share with, to invite into this bigger picture? What area do you need to be reminded of this and begin to live into this? I think that's the challenge you could take home. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for my friends. And Lord, I just, uh, I ask that you would show them exactly how this applies. For some, maybe that means getting getting into community. Lord, actually engaging, getting a part of what you're doing. Lord, for others, it, it really means Just waking up to the bigger picture for some embracing you and saying, okay, Jesus, I want that for the first time. I want your forgiveness, your grace. I pray your blessing on each person here. In the name of Jesus, amen.